Welcome to our second week in our series on the seven deadly sins. This idea, the seven deadly sins, this is an idea that has some traction in our culture. The seven deadly sins have inspired many different pieces of art, but the one that you're probably most familiar with is Dante's Divine Comedy, where they appear strongly in the section on purgatory, where the people in purgatory are divided into these seven sins to be purified. For some of you, this concept may have come up by watching an anime of this name. I see you over there. The seven deadly sins, however, are not an idea from Scripture. They're an idea from Christian tradition. However, the Bible does contain sin lists, such as in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, where it says, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So sin lists are not foreign to the Bible. There's another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, and another in Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 6. However, the seven deadly sins, as a list in particular, originate from a Christian group referred to as the Desert Fathers. They're very, very early in our history, like before Rome legalized Christianity, that early, a mere handful of generations since the apostles. If this is a, an era that you're familiar with, you might know um, Anthony the Great is kind of the biggest name from this period, the, the Great Fathers, if this was something that you wanted to look into. But so what they did was they tried to categorize sin into a manageable number of groups, right? Like if you, you read that section in Galatians, and it's not that that's not useful, but there, it definitely feels like there's a bit of repetition going on, right? And, and that Paul's being a little bit a little bit poetic in a good way, right? But it's, it's not really a list that we can super, super manage. So the idea that trying to get sin into a manageable number of groups should sound like something very relatable. Because I mean, like we do that with church, right? We don't have a separate ministry head for everything that we do. We group things together and things that are similar, and we put them under one authority, right? We don't have a ministry head over the preschool class and another ministry head over the elementary school Sunday school, right? We group those together so that they're more manageable. Their conclusion, the Desert Fathers' conclusion, was that sin could be grouped into seven essential categories, pride, wrath, greed, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. They're called deadly because they don't just stand alone, they perpetuate and foster more sin in our lives. So last week, Precious shared with us on the topic of pride, and this week, we are discussing wrath. So, what is wrath? There are many words that spring to mind when we think of wrath. Well, assuming there are any words that spring to mind, because it's kind of an old-timey word that we don't use very much today, right? But, like, anger would be a strong association. Vengeance. Hate. Hate is another one that comes up with wrath. Though it seems the best way to think about wrath is in the context of action. 
There's a scene from a movie that I really would have loved to play for you guys today, but there were very legitimate concerns about copyright strikes and getting our stream frozen. So we're, we're watching out for you who are hanging out with us online. We don't want you frozen out. But the scene is from 2016's Star Wars Rogue One. A group of rebel soldiers are attempting to flee with the hidden, or rather the stolen, Death Star plans when the lights go out in the hallway and they turn to face the dark hallway behind them. Black silence fills the air for a beat and then a raspy breathing sound fills the air. And a red lightsaber flares to life, casting the room into crimson shadow and revealing the armored form of Darth Vader. Fire! comes the cry from the rebel soldiers who blast everything that they have at him to no avail. Vader, unperturbed, deflects the blast with his lightsaber and walks confidently towards them. He rips the guns out of their hands and slashes at the men with his saber, at one point slamming a man into the ceiling with his magic and holding him there before slicing him and dropping him back to the floor. Vader appears unstoppable as he executes his wrath upon these rebel soldiers. If you know Star Wars, then one of the big themes is that Vader is driven by, powered by, his anger and his hate. And this scene is those emotions being unleashed. And that's helpful for us as we think about this topic. Because you can get angry about something, and then the response is wrath. In fact, that's probably the easiest way for us to think about it. That anger is an emotion, and wrath is an action. This is why the Bible can say things like in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Being angry isn't a sin, but how we manage and respond to that anger is where sin comes in. On that note, it's worth bringing up that not all wrath is automatically evil or sinful. God is wrathful. He's wrathful towards sin and sinners. In Romans 1.18, we read that it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That's us, just in case you're not paying attention. The, the death and resurrection being the sacrifice for our sins and our rescue from God's righteous wrath is a major theme of the New Testament. Just a little later in Romans 5.9, Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So obviously, God isn't sinning when he's wrathful, right? Like, not all wrath is sinful, but the thing is that when God executes divine wrath, he is always perfectly justified and perfectly accurate. He's God. He's all-knowing, so he understands perfectly all of the circumstances, all of the causes, all of the effects, and when God enacts vengeance for sin, he does it right and to the right degree. There's a very famous scene from a very famous movie, and it's kind of long, but it's from the cinematic masterpiece, The Godfather. Yes, I've already used Star Wars in my sermon, and now I'm going to use The Godfather. In the opening scene, we see a father who has come to see The Godfather, Don Corleone, to ask for justice. 
His daughter was assaulted, beaten very badly, and his anguish as a father is palpable. He asks the dawn to murder these men who assaulted his girl. And the godfather replies, should I, should I try to do it? There is no justice. Your daughter lives. How was that? Is that all right? Anyone? No, not great? All right. He replies, that is not justice. Your daughter lives. The man who was hurting wanted a greater punishment than what was appropriate. When we want to execute justice, we often overstep. God the Father, not the Godfather, but God the Father, never oversteps. He knows it all. He's got the full picture, and he can enact justice precisely. Deuteronomy 32:35, God says to leave vengeance to him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I think, I think this is why. Our wrath, on the other hand, is often accompanied by uttering, often loudly, the phrase, that's it, I've had it. And rarely does anything good follow those words. Every single moment of which I am most ashamed as a father has been preceded by those words or some variation thereof. Can you relate, maybe? Maybe the kids are acting up or being disrespectful. That's it! Maybe? The other day, one of my children slapped my wife in the face. It wasn't quite Darth Vader in the hallway in my house. Like it, was, it wasn't that, but uh, there's definitely a lot of wrath that was bubbling up. And here's the thing. I was not wrong to be angry that my wife was disrespected, right? I wasn't wrong to spring to her defense, not even a little bit. But the question is, how did I do that? What did that action look like? Ephesians 5, be angry and do not sin. In the moment, we almost always feel that our wrath is justified because we're looking at the reason. And so often, we are looking at a bad situation. We see injustice, we see pain, we see evil and wrongdoing, and our response is anger. That's good. You're supposed to feel like that. You're supposed to be upset when you see people being mistreated and hurt and injustice being committed. But rarely is our actual response measured and correct. Too often, we fall into wrath. Psalm 37.8 says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. On the other hand, it seems like almost every relational moment that I look back on with pride and gratitude has been preceded by patience. A time when I've seen injustice or danger, and instead of reacting wrathfully, I've taken a moment to measure my response. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Traditionally, patience has been the virtue that has been placed in opposition to the deadly sin of wrath. They talk about seven deadly sins and seven heavenly virtues, and the one that gets paired up with wrath is patience. Forgiveness and mercy are also good words to think about, but patience is a good catch-all. 
When the kids are behaving badly, and instead of exploding, I remind myself that they're little people with big emotions, and they're just learning. I'm exercising patience. When I speak with someone, and I put listening to them above my own inconvenience or plans, I'm exercising patience. None of you are inconvenient, just so we're clear. But the Bible often refers to this idea as being slow to anger. James 1, verses 19 to 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When we're taking control of ourselves, when we're using perspective and trying so hard to see people through God's eyes instead of through the eyes of our own hurts and prejudices, we are enacting patience. In fact, we are being more like God. Because patience isn't just something that God calls us to, but something that God does constantly. In 2 Peter 3.9, we read that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This verse is directly in the context of talking about the end times and Christ's return. God is patient with us. He wants people to turn from their sin and to come back to him and to receive eternal life. Everything that's wrong in the world, all of the hurt and pain, God could set it right. But it will cost us our chance at salvation. It will cost the future for those who haven't yet heard or accepted. And so God waits. And if that's you today, I would invite you to join us at the back of the sanctuary after the service. For prayer, we would love to help you get started on that journey. Patience isn't only waiting, though. Patience is also forgiveness. When you and I screw up, when we miss once again the way of living to which God has called us, He doesn't just forgive, He gives us another chance. He doesn't just not give us the punishment we do deserve, He also gives us blessings that we don't deserve. We see this constantly throughout the gospel narratives where Jesus deals patiently with his disciples. They fight amongst one another. They ask questions that suggest they frankly haven't been paying attention. At one point, James and John offer to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village because they didn't welcome Jesus. How's that for wrath? Jesus rebukes them, but he doesn't send them away. He steps in like a good parent and stops the harmful behavior, but he doesn't sever his relationship with them. He is patient. And those disciples go on to become extremely long-suffering in the service of Christ, going to their deaths for him. They patiently endure the hardships that come their way, and they do everything that they can to extend the grace and mercy of God to hurting people rather than hurting them in return. This gives us great hope in our own journeys with God and with the people around us. It gives us hope that the same God who is at work in those lives that we read about in the book is still alive and at work in our own lives. It gives us hope that if these people can have their rough edges, their unchristlike habits smoothed out in the workshop of life, 
that one day we too can be more like the people that God has called us to be and less like the people that we default into being in moments of weakness. Let us turn from wrath. In closing today, let's finish by reading some of the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's let these words wash over us, fill us, let's meditate on them as we go. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that have been recorded for us that we can read and ponder and work into our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit that you would work these thoughts out through us, God, these thoughts that you've given us, that we would be more like you. Help us to turn from wrath. Help us to be people of patience, to be more like you as we deal with those situations this coming week, God, in which our tempers are tested and we feel that response bubbling up that we know is ungodly. Help us to turn to you, to be more like you. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. We love you, God. Be with us this week. Amen.